All that transpired in Daniel chapters 1 through 5 happened in ancient Babylonia. Up to that time, Babylonia was the greatest human empire ever conceived. Its capital was Babylon itself. Other than Babylonian rulers Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson Belshazzar, the four principal characters throughout that section are Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In 605 B.C., all four Jewish men as teenagers had been brought captive from Jerusalem to Babylon to be trained to become rulers in that empire. And all four men distinguished themselves as exceptional candidates to rule. God predicted in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar that the media Persians would conquer Babylon. No one anticipated that because Babylon was so fortified. Babylon was considered unconquerable. Remember its massive dimensions. Corresponding to our 11th or 12th of October, 539 B.C., the medium Persian armies under the command of Cyrus, the head of that ancient empire, did the unthinkable. He stationed thousands of his troops... Uh, where the Euphrates River entered Babylon. Remember, the Euphrates ran through Babylon. He stationed thousands of them at the entrance into Babylon and then stationed thousands more where the river exited Babylon. And then the remainder of his troops built a canal to divert the Euphrates River away from Babylon and into a large swamp-like area. Cyrus ordered the soldiers at the entrance and exit of the Euphrates. He ordered them to watch the water level. And once the water level receded because of the diversion they had created, they were instructed to march into Babylon through that riverbed underneath the wall. So during the night, uh, without being seen, once the water level had receded, uh, enough for them to keep their heads above water, the media Persian troops began to march through the water wade through that water underneath the wall into Babylon itself. Once inside, the Babylonians were caught so caught off guard that there was an immediate surrender. Babylon's had boasted that Babylon could never be taken, but it was. Now notice Daniel 5, verse 31. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, kingdom meaning Babylonia, being about 62 years old. Notice Daniel 6 and verse 1. It pleased Darius. I might add, some people pronounce this Darius. Darius, it doesn't matter. Uh, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. Now, question. Who was this Darius the Mede? Listen carefully, as this was confusing to me. I had to investigate this for some time. One opinion, we said last time, historians believe Darius the Mede and Cyrus could have been the one and same man. It could have been Darius the Mede and Cyrus were the same person. That's because Darius was actually a throne title. It was an honorific title, such as king or pharaoh or Caesar. And the word Darius actually meant owner of the scepter. Owner of the scepter. A scepter was an ornamented 
staff that rulers used on ceremonial occasions. And the person that owned that scepter was often a king, a pharaoh, or Caesar. So some believe Cyrus had earlier adopted that throne title, Darius, for himself after he started his reign in Persia. I might add a footnote. The ancient Persian empire consisted of ethnic Iranian people. More than one half of modern Iranians are descendants from Persia. This is relative. I could, couldn't get into this last time. There wasn't enough time. But there's a second opinion about Darius the Mede. Some believe Darius and Cyrus were two distinct and different men. Some see them as two men, not one. Some believe Darius the Mede was the name of the man who acted as a subordinate ruler to the Persian king Cyrus. His personal name was Gubaryu, Gubaryu, and his honorific title was Darius the Mede, and he ruled, captured Babylonia underneath Cyrus. Notice this map. This map uh, uh, describes Persia before the capture of Babylonian. Notice how large the Persian Empire was prior to absorbing Babylonia into its empire. Some massive, massive uh, landmass uh, and people that this Persian Empire encompassed. Remember verse 31 read, Darius the Mede received the kingdom. That word received seems to indicate that Darius received Babylonia from someone else, that he was given the right to rule Babylonia by someone greater than himself. Also, the book of Daniel never refers to Darius the Mede as king of Persia, but it does mention that Cyrus was king of Persia. That might mean it might mean that Darius ruled Babylonia, but under the auspices of the Persian king Cyrus. The late theologian Dr. John Whitcomb offered a, authored a commentary on Daniel, and in that publication, he mentioned a document called the Nabonidus Chronicle. The Nabonidus Chronicle. Remember, Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar, the last ruler of Babylon. That, was, that document consisted of a clay tablet. It was a 6th century B.C. extra-biblical document that said a ruler named Gudbaryu, we just mentioned him, Gudbaryu installed sub-governors in Babylon. That statement seems to fit Daniel 6 verse 1, where Darius selected 120 satraps and... Uh, and three governors over those satraps that would seem to confirm that Darius the Mede and Gubaryu were one and the same person. So which is the correct answer to that question? Was Darius the Mede, mentioned in Daniel 5 verse 31, the same as the Persian ruler Cyrus? Or was Darius the Mede someone else named Gubaryu who ruled Babylonia under the command of Cyrus? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. There are good men on both sides of this argument. I can't be certain. Please understand, though, that whoever he was, Darius the Mede, mentioned in Daniel 5, verse 31, is the same, the same Darius mentioned in Daniel 6, verse 1. The reason I mention that is because this honorific title, Darius, 
was used on at least five different Persian rulers. So it does get confusing. Some commentators believe that Darius, mentioned in Daniel 6 verse 1, was Darius the first or Darius the Great. I do not believe that because Darius the Great ruled Persia from 522 BC through 486 BC and that came sometime after this account we're reading. Significant time had passed between Daniel 5 and Daniel 6 and at this time Daniel was in his 80s. He could have been as old as 90. Now this is shocking to most people because that means Daniel was an old man when he was thrown into the lion's den. Most people aren't aware of that. Let's reread verse 1, Daniel 6. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. These satraps were government sub-rulers that governed a group of people or governed a province. Darius had assigned 120 men to be these satraps so that the entire kingdom was under their rule. Then he selected three commissioners or three governors to oversee those 120 satraps and Daniel, notice, Daniel was one of those governors. The second verse tells us the reason for that. Verse 2, and over these, meaning over these satraps, three governors of whom Daniel was one that the satraps might give an account to them. So these 120 men serving as satraps sub-rulers were accountable to three governors over them. Now why did Darius create this organizational structure? 120 men sub-ruling the entire empire. Over them though, three commissioners or governors. Why did he do that? Notice, so that the king would suffer no loss. Darius was concerned about those 120 satraps, he was concerned that those men could be susceptible to corruption. He was concerned that those men might misuse political power and steal government funds. He didn't trust them. So he wanted these three governors to oversee them, to be certain that nothing nefarious happened. Aren't we grateful that Potential political corruption is no longer a problem in modern government. I find the etym etymology of the word politics is interesting. Politics is derived from poly, meaning many, and ticks, meaning blood-sucking parasites. And sometimes that describes the people we elect to public office, in addition to government bureaucrats. I have one in mind, Dr. Fauci, the highest paid government employee. He actually is paid more than the president. Dr. Fauci um, is the poster child for the children's rhyme, liar, liar, pants on fire. He's a Chinese communist sympathizer, and Dr. Fauci has blood on his hands. 
So potential corruption is still part of human government. We haven't advanced much, have we? Throughout this time in Babylonia, Daniel had distinguished himself as someone special. He was someone special. And that is apparent through his manifesting four characteristics. Let's go down through each one of them. Number one, Daniel had an excellent attitude. An excellent attitude. Notice verse 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps. Daniel distinguished himself above, meaning Daniel was a cut above. That's the reason uh, we said Daniel was someone special. Why was he above them? Notice, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the entire realm. Meaning, Darius planned to promote Daniel to the ultimate authoritative position throughout the empire. He wanted him to be promoted above those three governors uh, that were then above the 120 satraps. In essence, Darius wanted him to serve him as prime minister of the media Persian Empire. The Hebrew word translated as spirit has numerous definitions, and one of them is mind. Mind implies attitude. A number of commentators believe this is a reference to Daniel's attitude. And the implication is that Daniel had an excellent attitude. According to psychological studies, attitude is a psychological construct, meaning a mental and emotional entity that characterizes a person. There's no record that Daniel was envious of the other commissioners. He wasn't some chronic complainer. Some people bring happiness wherever they go. Some people bring happiness whenever they go. And that's contingent on someone's attitude. He wasn't arrogant. He didn't let success go to his head. And we soon learn he wasn't afraid to die. Understand, nothing, nothing matters more than someone's attitude. Let me illustrate the difference an excellent attitude can make. Orville Kelly was a husband and father of four children. At age 42, he learned he had cancer. And his prognosis was that he had just six months to 36 months left. He was terminal. At first, he isolated himself in his depression and didn't want people to even know about his disease. He was grieving his death, and he hadn't died. Then Orville and his wife decided to be more open about his cancer. To do that, Orville threw a party. All their friends were invited. Soon after the festivities started, Orville held up his hand and announced... He said, you're probably curious why we called you all together. Let me explain. This is a cancer party. A cancer party. The doctors have told me I have terminal cancer. I have from six months to 36 months left. That announcement was depressing at first, but then my wife and I decided that we are all terminal. 
So we are starting a new organization. It's called MTC. MTC is an acronym that means Make Today Count. And you are all charter members. And from that beginning, at that party, that organization started chapters across the nation, encouraging people that have a terminal disease to focus on being alive instead of being dead. But sometime after that, Kelly authored a book called Make Today Count. He met a man that told him, uh, after one of his lectures, we have something together in common. We're both dying from cancer. And Kelly responded to him, no, what we actually have in common is the fact we're both still alive. He focused on life, not death. And he outlasted the doctor's prognosis because of his exceptional attitude. Psalm 118, verse 24, David said, This is the day the Lord has made. So we will schedule a pity party and be depressed. No. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. As a motivational speaker, the late Zig Ziglar, a committed Christian, I might add, said from time to time, we need a checkup from the neck up because attitude matters. Number two, in addition to his exceptional attitude, Daniel had blameless character. Blameless character. Verse four, so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Verse 4, then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel. These envious men spoke to human resources over the empire, and there was nothing incriminating in his file. Daniel had a pure and clean record. He had never had a water gate or even a deflate gate. NFL fans should remember that one. There were no skeletons in his closet. No one could find dirt on Daniel. There was no sin of commission and there was no sin of omission, meaning there was nothing he did that he shouldn't have done, and there was nothing he didn't do that he should have done. He was a virtuous man. He was as close to perfection as a human biblical character could have been. He is a model of what we ought to be. Daniel had been blessed and, it, and had achieved much, but there was a downside to achievement. Daniel had said and done nothing to deserve rejection and hatred, but that's what he received from his peers and from his subordinates. Understand something. If we have more than someone else has, if we are able to do more than someone else can do, if our position is above where someone else is at, then chances are that someone else becomes envious of us. Someone said if we are determined to make a mark on this world, then chances are someone else will show up with an eraser. People are envious of others' success. Daniel had been promoted. Daniel had received favoritism from Darius. Darius. 
So these other rulers became envious of him and wanted to get him into trouble. In popular culture, the words envy and jealous are used on an interchangeable basis and actually shouldn't be, according to most linguists, psychologists, and philosophers. Being envious and being jealous are related to one another, but are not one and the same thing. Those words aren't synonyms. Notice, being envious means wanting what someone else has that we don't. Wanting what someone else has that we don't. Being jealous, though, is not wanting someone else to have what we do have. Being jealous is not wanting someone else to have what we do have. An example of that, um, someone is dating, and uh, this person feels that uh, that person is exclusive to them. Uh, This is serious dating. And then someone else starts showing an interest in that person. Well, then it's possible to be jealous of that person that is showing interest in something that we presently have and don't want to lose. That's jealousy. It is different from envy. Now notice that something that someone else has we don't have or that something we, don't, we do have and don't want someone else to have could be a person, it could be a possession, it could be a position, it could be a portfolio, it could be popularity, or it could be something else. Bertrand Russell was an atheist, and I almost never quote atheist, but since even a broken clock has the correct time twice a day, sometimes I do, Mr. Russell said that envy was one of the most potent causes of unhappiness. Envy was one of the most potent causes of personal unhappiness. He argued that not only is the envious person suffering unhappiness because of their enviousness, but that that person might also want to inflict misfortune on the one that they are envious of in order to reduce their status. Meaning we don't want that person to have what he has and so we want to inflict misfortune on him so he doesn't have that anymore. That is exactly what those other governors and satraps wanted to do to Daniel. They wanted to find dirt on him, wanted to get him into trouble so that he might lose his position over them. None of us are immune to becoming envious and that includes me. An example of that. High Sierra Fellowship started more than three decades ago in this community. Um, High Sierra Fellowship resembles a Calvary Chapel in style and substance, although it's not a part of the actual Calvary Chapel syndicate. High Sierra Fellowship is a good church and Pastor Rich is a good, good man. And High Sierra Fellowship just built a new building on Gilman, just blocks from our house. So I have the good fortune of passing that campus multiple times each day. I could pass it a dozen times each day because we only have one way out of our subdivision and one way in, and so I'm obligated to go past High Sierra Fellowship. It's a beautiful structure. 
Pastor Rich took us on a tour, and beautiful, inside and out. And it has definite advantages over our building. There's so much more critical space that we need and we don't have. And in my humanness, there is a temptation to become envious of what High Sierra Fellowship now has that we don't have. I understand, though, that God cannot bless enviousness. So once construction started on that project, probably 15 months ago or so, I started using preventive measures to preclude that potential problem of enviousness. The solution is simple. I pray for their success. Unless someone else is in the car, if someone is there, I'm probably conversing with that someone, Um, So it doesn't apply, but if I am alone in the car, each time I drive past High Sierra Fellowship campus, I pray for them. I did it this morning. I prayed for them as I saw cars filling up for their 830 service. I prayed for them. Um, I pray God continues to bless that congregation. I probably pray more for that congregation than most of the congregation prays for themselves because they do it all the time. No one knows that. I haven't told Pastor Rich that. That technique has been effective because I am not envious of that new campus, especially because High Sierra Fellowship has a sizable mortgage and we don't. (laughs) We should sometime do a Dave Ramsey debt-free scream because we are debt-free, praise God. I also have a friend in uh, Pastor South Reno Baptist Church, Dr. Joe Taylor, good friend of mine. He's excited they just paid off their mortgage. Do you know what their mortgage was a month? $53,000. He just freed up over $600,000 in their budget. I said, hey, have you ever thought about helping a mission church down in Garnerville? I mean, we could. Anyway, those rulers, though, those other governors, those satraps, and others had a significant problem. Um, those men wanted to find something on Daniel, those men were envious of him. Envious of his abilities, envious of his position, envious of how Darius was favoring him. Daniel, though, had a blameless character. There was nothing, nothing to pin on him, and that frustrated them. Number three, Daniel had a commitment to faithfulness. A commitment to faithfulness. Notice verse four. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because, notice, because he was faithful. One of the most unforgivable, unforgettable moments I ever experienced was in 1973. Um, I'd been called to preach, was preparing, and uh, on staff at a large church and still in school. I was privileged to spend most of an afternoon alone because I had driven some distance to pick him up at the airport, drive him back, get him situated in a motel. I was privileged to spend most of an afternoon alone with one of the more famous preachers in modern times. He was Robert G. Lee. 
not named after the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. He was a former pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. That congregation in and of itself is monstrous. And he had been three, time, three times president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He had an unusual ministerial academic background. In addition to his other educational achievements, he earned a Ph.D. in international law from the Chicago Law School in 1919. He was an amazing man. He had such amazing mental abilities. He could manuscript his sermons word for word, as I do, sometimes 30 pages of manuscript and then in the pulpit recite them completely from memory something I can't even begin to relate to he was born in South Carolina in 1886 the fifth child of poor sharecroppers a much loved black woman named Mam Liddy was also a nurse and a midwife who helped facilitate his birth. It is said seconds after being born, she danced around the bedroom of Lee's log cabin and shouted, and I can't mimic her southern accent, she shouted and said, Praise God, glory be, the good Lord done sent a preacher to this here house. Ma'am Liddy knew something no one else knew. Those were prophetic words, because Robert G. Lee has been called the modern prince of preachers. He preached his most famous sermon, Payday Someday, more than 1,200 times across this nation. Once he turned 84, someone asked him how long he would continue to preach. After a long pause, he responded, In 1910, at my ordination, I was married to preaching until death do us part. So why shouldn't I continue preaching? Dr. Lee preached until he couldn't. And that was near the end and he died at age 91. Dr. Lee also added some statistics to reinforce his argument to be faithful to what God had called him to do. He quoted a scholar named Newman Darlin who studied the achievement of 400 foremost historical characters. 25% of the greatest historical characters continued to excel at their craft past age 70. 22.5% continued on and excelled past age 80. 6% continued on and still excelled past age 90. He cited some examples. At 83, William Gladstone became Prime Minister of Great Britain for the fourth time. Artist Michelangelo painted his most famous masterpiece called The Last Judgment at age 89. Evangelist John Wesley continued preaching multiple times per day until his death at age 88. Thomas Edison was still inventing at age 90. Frank Lloyd Wright was still considered a creative architect at age 90. George Bernard Shaw was still writing theatrical pieces at age 90. Grandma Moses was still painting at age 80. J.C. Penney was still at his desk and conducting business at age 95. And here's Daniel. Daniel here, in this narrative, is pushing 90. And he's still available to God to use to rule as prime minister of the media Persian Empire. Most people aren't aware of this. 
I just happened to be reminded of this. Nine years ago this morning was our first Sunday here as pastor of this congregation. I was almost 62 then, and I am almost 71 now. Most men age 71 are retired. I am not retired. I'm tired. I'm not retired. And I have no plans to retire. Actually, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. That's where I'm at at the moment. I've never ministered in such a small, small populous, small demographic as this. I primarily ministered in larger suburban, more populated regions. And so this has been different for me. From a pure statistical perspective, and this is our seventh congregation, from a pure statistical perspective, these past nine years haven't been what I have been more accustomed to. The effort has been there. I believe the effort on my part has been there consistently, but the results have been modest. I've turned down raises these past two years because my performance hasn't merited an increase in compensation, I feel. But God hasn't called us to be successful as we perceive success. God has called us to be faithful. And faithfulness is most often misunderstood. In Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, There's a parable called the parable of the talents. The talents in that narrative don't represent talents as we perceive them. Those talents don't represent genetic inherited abilities such as perfect pitch, fast twitch muscle, excellent hand-eye coordination, unusual intelligence, and on and on. That's how we use the word talents. But that's not how talents are used in that parable. The talents in that parable were a measure of valuable metal, such as gold and silver. So those talents from that parable had monetary value, significant monetary value. Those talents represented sizable sums of money. In summation, according to this parable, a rich man, a rich landowner, and homeowner, and um, a master, left three of his servants, talents, to manage for him in his absence. He was going on a journey. And during that time, he wanted these servants to manage some of his monies. The amounts distributed to those servants were proportionate to each man's management abilities. One servant received five talents, One servant received two talents, and one servant received just one talent. After the master left, that one talent servant, he could have invested that one talent in a bank account and accrued interest, but he didn't. He took that talent, he took those monies, and he buried them in the ground so that that talent would be there to return to the master, the full original amount. That wasn't good. That wasn't acceptable. Christians are also considered managers. God has called us to be managers. God, in, and in particular His Son Jesus, is the ultimate master. We serve Him. We are His servants. All that we possess is on loan to us from God. All that we have is His and not ours. And if there's a question about that, just consider 
how much of what we possess we take with us past the grave. That would be nothing. John D. Rockefeller was the richest man since Solomon. Not Bill Gates, not Elon Musk. John D. Rockefeller. In today's economy, his net worth was $418 billion. Someone asked Rockefeller's accountant after his death, ask him, how much money, I'm curious, how much money did Mr. Rockefeller leave behind? His accountant said, all of it. That's what happens. Remember, Christians are spiritual managers. Jesus is our master. We are accountable to him. He has loaned us resources and goods to be used for him. In fact, I define that as we are to manage the master's goods for the good of the master. We are to manage the master's goods for the good of the master. And that one talent servant hadn't done that. He buried his talent. He hadn't used the master's goods for the good of the master. And so his master came home and called him a wicked and lazy servant. And he was. But the other servants were good managers, wise managers, and invested their master's monies and earned more monies for him. The five-talent servant, the one who had received five talents, earned another five talents. The one servant that received two talents earned another two talents. Each of those servants made a 100% profit on the master's monies. And the master, seeing that after he returned, was very, very pleased. He said to them, each of them, in verses 21 and verse 23. Now, don't miss this. He said to them, and these are the words, same words, we want to hear from our master Jesus Christ in heaven. And those words are, well done, good and faithful servant. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 reads, Moreover, it is required, this is not optional, it is required in stewards, stewards are managers. Moreover, it is required in managers that one be found faithful. Based on that assessment, in this parable of the talents, that assessment this master made about those servants that had been productive after he returned home. Based on that assessment, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness doesn't just mean not being absent. Faithfulness doesn't just mean not being inconsistent. Faithfulness doesn't just mean not being not counted on. It does mean that. And there are a sizable percentage of Christians that don't even understand that part. It does mean that. But it means more than that. Attending church, attending public worship on a consistent, consistent basis is an appropriate beginning. But it's just a beginning. There's more to faithfulness than that. Faithfulness means using and maximizing on all the resources God has loaned us. Faithfulness means using and maximizing on all the resources God has loaned to us. Those resources include our time, our talents, meaning genetic inherited abilities, our spiritual gifts, 
our societal position, our educational or academic achievements, our material possessions, and our financial assets. All those resources that are available to us are on loan to us from God and we are to use those resources and maximize on those resources for our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand advancing age and health problems do present sometimes significant limitations. We understand that. God understands that. But as we are able, as we are able, God assisting us, we should use those resources that we have on loan to us from God. We should make the most of them for Him. That is the essence of faithfulness. My pastoral record here is not that of unusual success as the contemporary church defines success. I have been much more successful in other places. But I do believe, and this is a sincere opinion, I do believe it has been a faithful record. I have tried to be faithful to consistently use all those resources God has entrusted to me in shepherding this congregation. And people, that's all God expects from me. Daniel was considered a good and faithful servant and I want to be considered the same. In heaven, I want to hear those same words from Jesus. Larry Ray Webb, well done, good and faithful servant. That's why I do what I do. And you should do the same. Number four, Daniel had uncompromised resolve. Uncompromised resolve. Notice the definition. Resolve is someone's firm determination to do something. Someone's firm determination to do something. Resolve is a tenacious and relentless determination to do something. Notice verse 5. Then these men said to Darius, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. This is one of the most incredible commendations that could be made about someone. I wish this could be said about me. Those envious rulers said, We cannot find anything objectionable about Daniel except his commitment to his God. And that was objectionable to them because these men were pagans. The one thing that could legitimately be pinned on Daniel was his commitment to his Jewish God, Yahweh. There was literally nothing else to accuse him of. He was blameless of all else. Imagine that. Nothing else. Just his commitment to God. Verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. That was the expected greeting uh, toward a ruler of his stature. Uh, a greeting less than that was unacceptable. King Darius, live forever. Verse 7, all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, notice, anyone 
the petitions, any God or man, for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. First notice at the beginning of this verse, notice the word all. All. So, all the governors, all the administrators, all the satraps, all the counselors and advisors, um, these rulers approached Daniel, pardon me, approached Darius and said, uh, listen, Darius, all of us have gotten together and all of us have agreed to this request. We should be careful, people, in using the word all. All is an inclusive word that doesn't permit exceptions. Someone registers a complaint to me about something and uh, the argument is often but pastor, it seems that everyone, everyone is the same as all. It seems that everyone thinks we should do this, or everyone thinks we should do that. And I go, okay, who is everyone? Names. Give me some names. Who is everyone? That's when the argument usually breaks down, because there are usually no more than two or three names. But according to them, it's everyone. It's all people. That is what happened here. The statement is made that all these persons agreed to do this. That was an exaggerated statement. That was an inflammatory statement intended to intimidate. We know that not all the rulers agreed to this request because Daniel was one of those rulers and he would not have agreed to this request and there were probably others that didn't agree. But that didn't matter because these men that approached Darius wanted him to think that this was unanimous across the board. Do we understand this? These envious rulers, in essence, made Darius God for one month. These men essentially made Darius God for one month. The rule or executive order those men created and wanted Darius to agree to was that no one throughout the empire was to request or pray to anyone unless it was to Darius himself for a 30-day period or one month. Verse 8, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Verse 9, Therefore King Darius signed the written decree. Verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. His God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish God. As was his custom since early days. Notice that last phrase, as was his custom since early days. Daniel's relational connection to God wasn't crisis-orientated. I mean, some people treat God as though he's a spare tire. Ignore him, pretend he's not there until we have a flat, and then we pull him out of the trunk. We need him. No, that's not Daniel. Praying wasn't some emergency technique he resorted to using during times of trouble. Praying was a consistent and continuous habit to him. Notice, he set specific times to pray. Three times a day. Notice he selected a specific location to pray in an upstairs room. And notice he even selected a specific posture to pray. He prayed on his knees. And he met God at those times and at that location and 
on his knees, and he did that day after day after day after day. Daniel prayed because he was convinced prayer made a difference. Unlike one modern Jewish man, a journalist assigned to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Bureau had an apartment that overlooked a famous wailing wall. She said each day she would look out and see an old Jewish man standing there at that wailing wall and praying vigorously. Each day he was there praying. So this journalist went down and introduced herself to this old man. She said, I'm curious, you seem to come every day to the wall. How long have you done that and what are you praying for? This old man replied, yes, I have come here to pray every day for 25 years. In the morning I pray for world peace and for the brotherhood of man. I go home, have a cup of tea, and I come back and I pray for the eradication of illness and disease from the earth. And this journalist was amazed and said, that's, that's amazing to me. I, I, that's, I've never seen that. How does it make you feel to come here at this wall every day for 25 years and pray for those things? And this old man had a sudden sad expression on his face. And he responded, how does it make me feel? Like I'm talking to a wall. People, that is not authentic praying. Prayer is a meaningful conversation with the sovereign and personal God of this universe. And it is something that none of us do enough of. And as a corporate congregation, we don't do enough of. And that's going to change. So hang on, wait for an announcement. We're changing that. Notice Daniel was fully aware that this government decree against praying had just been signed and issued. He was aware of that. The verse reads that he knew that. Now, he could have returned home after hearing about that decree and found a secluded location inside his house to pray. Secret praying wouldn't have dishonored God. And if he had prayed in seclusion and in secret, those rulers wouldn't have known he was continuing to pray so he would be safe from arrest. But that's not what Daniel did. He had resolved to continue to do what he had consistently been doing before. So he returned to his house. He went to an upstairs room. He opened his windows toward Jerusalem. Remember, although the Babylonians had destroyed the Jerusalem temple decades earlier, the Hebrew people still considered Jerusalem the center of God's attention on earth. So Daniel opened his windows toward Jerusalem. He got on his knees at that open window, and he prayed, and he did it three times that day. Daniel chose not to pray in secret because he wanted to make a statement. This was a defiant prayer because he prayed contrary to Darius's decree. And more than that, Daniel wanted to make a public statement about his continuing commitment to God. If Daniel hadn't done this, then he would have given a mistaken impression to those other governors and those satraps that his commitment to God had changed because of a man-made anti-praying ordinance or decree. And he didn't want them to think that. Daniel was resolved to do the right thing no matter what the consequences. And so he made that resolution public. Verse 11, Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Those deceitful rulers, those envious men, created this entire no praying permitted thing 
in order to find a reason to arrest one man, Daniel. All of that was for him. So once the decree had been signed, then those men set up a sting operation to catch Daniel in the now illegal act. It wasn't that difficult to do because Daniel wasn't about to change the thing. Verse 12, And they went before the king and spoke after seeing him pray, went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Uh, Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Verse 13. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Verse 14, And the king, when he heard those words, was greatly displeased with himself. Why was he displeased with himself? Because he'd been deceived into signing that decree. He never thought through that carefully. Should have, he didn't. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored until the going down of the sun to deliver him. Daniel had been a huge asset to Darius. Remember, Darius wanted him to become prime minister of the empire. So Darius was upset when he realized that this decree it signed had implications to Daniel. And Darius didn't want to sentence Daniel to death. So he tried and tried and tried to find a loophole in that executive order that he had just signed, but he couldn't find one. Verse 15. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Most people in this room have heard of the phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians. That phrase describes something that has been determined and that cannot change. That cannot be altered, even in the slightest. It is permanent. In that ancient culture, the belief was that kings were infallible and mistake-free. So the king couldn't change what he had signed because to do so would be to admit that he was less than infallible. So Darius was stuck with an irreversible, unchangeable law that he didn't think through before he signed it. And that meant Daniel had violated this order from Darius and he was sentenced to the lion's den. And that happens next Sunday, so don't miss that. Most literature about Daniel, commentaries, children's Sunday school curriculum, and even children's songs about Daniel mention the phrase, dare to be a Daniel. And that is an appropriate challenge, dare to be a Daniel. People, we are in difficult, difficult end times. If this culture continues moving toward godless, socialist Marxism that doesn't tolerate Christianity. And if changes are imposed on us, we must resolve and determine to dare to be a Daniel. If financial contributions to congregations are no longer tax-exempt, then dare to be a Daniel means our giving remains unchanged. If public worship gatherings such as this one are banned and this building is fenced off 
as has happened in Canada in recent months, then dare to be a Daniel means we still meet and still worship just underground and in secret. If Bibles are considered illegal contraband, then dare to be a Daniel means we purchase them on the black market and still distribute them. If personal evangelism is made illegal, then dare to be a Daniel means we are chance arrest and we still tell people about Jesus. If the secular population is offered financial incentives to turn known Christians over to the authorities, then to dare to be a Daniel means, yes, we go to prison, but we never, we never, we never renounce Jesus Christ. Os Guinness has authored more than 30 books. He's the senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. For decades, he was a close friend to another famous author and preacher, John Stott. Stott was an evangelical Anglican, one of the men most responsible for the modern evangelical movement. He is now deceased, not long ago. He once said, an evangelical is a plain, ordinary Christian. He's right. The BBC referred to Stott as someone who could, quote, explain complex theology in a way lay people could easily understand. That is a huge compliment, one I pray could ultimately be said about me. I had some slight doctrinal disagreement with Dr. Stott on non-essential matters, but I still had much, much respect for him. Michael Camardi from the Ethics and Public Policy Center said, if evangelicals could elect a pope, and my question is, why would we? If evangelicals could elect a pope, then Stott is the person they would most likely choose. He was a famous, famous but humble man. Os Guinness went to visit his friend John Stott just three weeks before his death at age 90. He sat beside his bedside for an hour as Guinness reminisced about their past mutual experiences. And then, before he left, Os Guinness asked Dr. Stott, how he could pray for him. Stott was on his back in bed and so weak he was barely able to speak. But he answered that question in almost a whisper and he said, Please pray, please pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. That should be our prayer, that we would be faithful to Jesus until our last breath. Would you bow your heads with me? Our heads are bowed. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and I'm going to ask uh, our, our graduates that we're going to honor in just a moment to come to the platform. Father, you've heard the message. You know what we've, uh, what we've said. We've tried to be... Uh, convincing. This is an amazing man, Daniel, an amazing man. He's a great model to emulate. Help us to be more like Daniel. Most of all, help us to dare to be a Daniel. I pray that each of us would. Bless our final moments here in this service as we honor graduates. I pray that this will be a blessing to them and to us, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.